Hey, am I on? There we go. Morning, everybody. So great to be out here in beautiful Silverton. The drive out, I was seeing all the mountains with snow on them, and I was like being in a Western. Like I was like in the film for a second. I was like, oh man, why don't I should come out here more often? Uh, my name is Josh Rice. Those of you who don't know me, um, I'm one of the staff here at, uh, at Outward Church, um, mostly in Salem. Um, and my wife and I are planning to head to Japan um, whenever they open their stupid border again uh, to serve as missionaries. That's our plan next couple years. Um, but today, I want to share some really exciting stuff with you from Scripture. And the title I have for this message today is, The Body and Blood Make Betrayers Brothers. The Body and Blood Make Betrayers Brothers. And the, the basic point... This is, the, this is the opposite. If, you know, there's no hook at the end here. I'm telling you right now where we're going. I want us to see today, as we see this amazing passage where we have Jesus laying out the Lord's Supper that we do every Sunday. He's laying out why we do it. And the argument I want to make for you guys is that with, this passage starts and ends with Judas. And so we should look at Judas and say, how do I not be that guy? What do I need? And the answer is, you need the supper. You need to feast on the Lord. That's where we're going. There's a lot to dive into, but I, want, I don't want you to miss how simple it is. Are you hungry? Are you needing? Come and eat. That's the simplest message that you can get here. Let me pray real quick and we'll dive into it. Dear Jesus, would you open our eyes? We need to see you. God, we just sang about, we read the scripture about entering the gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving means Eucharist. It means communion. We need to have the joy of being indwelt by you. We need to have the, the joy of knowing you intimately. Would you come open our eyes so we can see this scripture and so our hearts can be transformed by your resurrection. Thank you, God, that these words are alive. Your word is truth. And so we can pray with confidence. If you've brought us here this morning, there is fresh bread and wine to eat to give us strength and power to live with zeal. Give us this day. Thank you, Jesus. So let's open it up real quickly. Um, Luke 22 is paired really well with the other passages. Uh, oftentimes in Luke, we've been looking at the parallels. Like, what does Mark say? What does Matthew say? Each of the gospel authors have different things they notice. And one of the first things that we actually notice here is in Matthew and Mark, um, we get a little bit inside story in what the chiefs, the elders are thinking about. They want to put Jesus to death, but they don't really want to do it over Passover. So what's interesting about this passage is that the, 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 uh, the leaders of Jerusalem don't really want... Passover is a big festival, right? In fact, it, it's one of the high holy days. It's, it, because it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the Passover Sabbath is next, this is one of the highest days of the Jewish calendar. And so the, the chief priests are like, we got enough festival going on. Let's like, we can always kill him later. Let's not move too quickly. It, just briefly, I'll add, you can see a hint of God's sovereignty here. The day had to be Passover Sabbath. Because Passover Sabbath is the day when we see the sacrifice. Jesus has to die on the Passover, doesn't he? Because that's the moment we see our sacrifice is made for us. So it had to be that day, even if the Jewish elite wasn't really looking at that at first. Now, I really want to look at Judas. And this is kind of like, 
Uh, John Wenham wrote a book called, called The Problem of Evil, and after he's done with it, he said, I'm not doing anything about sin or evil for two years, because he spent three years writing a book only reading and thinking about evil. We don't want to look at Judas too long. We want to look at Jesus, but I want to briefly notice Judas here in verse 3. It says, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. The word betray in Greek is paradidomi. It literally means to closely give or closely hand. I want you to hear the intimacy. Jesus has handed over. That's often how it's translated in the KJV. That's because it's saying he's being handed. It's, it's, there's an intimacy, closely handed, okay? So this betrayal is going to go right to the core of who Jesus' friends were, to the 12, right? In verse 5, it's also interesting that when he tells the, the, the Jerusalem leaders that he's going to do this, it says, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. You all know it's really screwed up? Verse 5, they were glad. The, the word is ikarason, which is the Greek word for great rejoicing. That word is only used five times in the New Testament, twice, it's once here in Luke, once in Mark, as the leaders rejoicing. The other times, seeing the star, seeing Jesus' wounds after his resurrection. Um, so like, uh, and the last one is Jerusalem Council and Acts. So make a long story short, when this word is used, it's at big moments of New Testament history. God's doing something great. You want to know who else rejoices? The elites, and they're like, we got it in. We're going to take Jesus down. Now, because we're on this side of the resurrection, can I encourage you? It's crazy to say, but the betrayal of Jesus, we know that is going to bring us great joy, don't we? Like, this is not the route that I would have chosen. This is not the route you might have picked, but this is the route that God has ordained, and it will lead to great rejoicing. But we see this kind of um, twisted, inverse mirror image here where the elites are like, yeah, we got him. There's this wicked joy. And so since we're looking at Judas, I want us to be aware we're in a battle. You guys know this. Satan is a prowling lion. There is a war going on over our souls, and we see the veil pull back a little bit and see the cheering of darkness. We got him. This is it. We're going to take him down, but we're also going to go to the supper. I want, us, I want you to see God's sovereignty in Jesus' sacrifice is what's going to bring us life. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, this is interesting. Generally speaking, what the Jews of this day did is because the Passover would be on Sabbath and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be Friday, the day before, they didn't want to have two days where you don't work because you don't work on Sabbath, right? Sabbath or Shabbat just means stop. You don't do any work. So you can't have two days where you don't work. This is a pre-modern society. You don't have food in the fridge, right? You have to work. So they just pile the two days together. We'll just do Shabbat and we'll do the Feast of Unleavened Bread on one day, on Saturday. So Jesus actually goes back. Calvin notes that Jesus is so serious about feasting that he's like, no, we got to do two days. I don't care if we're not working. We have to do it twice because Friday's got a feast, Saturday's got a feast. We need to be there for both. So I, I like this way in which Jesus is kind of returning to the Mosaic tradition. You got to celebrate them both. Don't leave any feasts out. God gave them for us for our good, I think Jesus is telling us. Now, I think the way to connect this here is we want to look at Judas's attitude as position. Now, if you guys know the rest of Judas's story, he's going to betray Jesus, and he's going to go out and hang himself. So the question I have for you is, have you ever betrayed Jesus? 
the sobering thing about Jesus' story is if we take seriously what Scripture tells us about sin, we as believers betray Jesus all the time. All the time. Is there a sin you're struggling with? Is there something in your heart that you can't give over? Is there some fear or anxiety that's gripped you? If you are not trusting in Jesus, you are handing him over. Are you hearing me? There's a heaviness in this passage. When we see Judas, there should be a part of you that says, Oh no, that's me. I do this all the time. And so our question's got to be, Oh Lord, how can I not be Judas? And the joy I have to answer you is, the answer is not stop betraying Jesus because you're going to keep doing it. You're going to keep sinning until we're in the heavenlies. Actually, the answer is come to the table. What we need to not be Judas is to go to the supper. Okay, follow me here. This is what Jesus says. He's handing out the, the, the elements. He says, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So notice how this works. The old covenant, the Mosaic law was about, you know, God says, you know, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. If you do this, I'll bless you, right? You guys have read this. If you do this, I'll curse you. There's certain things you do transactionally and God blesses, certain things you do transactionally and God curses. This is different. This is a meal where you simply receive. Are you hearing the gospel message? Jesus doesn't say, if you do good, I hook you up. If you do bad, I burn you. Jesus says, just eat. Just come and eat. Buy bread without price. Have you guys heard these verses before? Jesus is offering us a meal. Now, in considering Judas, I think the question we got to ask is, what do we need to do to get ourselves right with Jesus so we can take the supper and not be like Judas, okay? What do we have to do? And, and this gets to 1 Corinthians, if you want to put that up, Jeff. Um, if you guys have been around the church for a while, you probably know about 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is telling the church how to do communion. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. He says, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So when I was young, I, this was a passage that made me think, if I had a bad week, if I had a week where I wasn't obeying Jesus very well, I should not take I think for years I actually, and maybe I would take anyway because like everyone else was taking, I guess I better do it to fit in. But like, I'm just being honest with you guys, I am absolutely sure I took the communion, the Eucharist, the supper unworthily. And I bet y'all have taken unworthily too. So my question is, how do we stop doing this? How do we take it worthily? And Paul gives us a hint. He says, we need to discern the body and we need to examine ourselves. So the, the clue here, follow me, the, the clue to avoid being Judas is we need to discern the body and examine our hearts. You with me? We need to see what does this mean that we're doing and what, where am I? What, what's going on with me? 
Now, Spurgeon says, Spurgeon's called sometimes the prince of preachers, and, and his argument about discerning the body and examining yourself, he says this, until you've believed in Jesus and so know him and know his power within you and have come to personal dealing with him, instead of getting a blessing from the ordinance, you would eat and drink condemnation to yourselves, not discerning the Lord's body as Paul tells us to. You're not capable of discerning that body if you have no faith. So in other words, if you want to know how do I take this body worthily, how do I take communion properly, you got to start by saying, do I believe? If you don't believe, it's just cracker, it's just bread, it's just wine or grape juice, whatever it is. It's not the real article. You with me? It's not the real McCoy. It's not the real thing we need. So reframing the question, under what circumstances should we refuse the cup? This really encouraged me. Spurgeon says, we are forgetful. The best Christian, highest in grace, still needs this memorial or this remembrance because he's apt to forget. Sinners will do well to look upon it, for it may be that the memorials of the Lord's death may cause them to remember their sins and turn to their Savior. Why do we say in remembrance of me? Why do we do this together? It's because we have to keep reminding ourselves, I need a Savior don't you love how kind Jesus is in the images he picks? He, he says, I'm the bread of life. You have to have bread to live. Like, Jesus is talking to simple people, not people with college degrees. Heck, not people who are literate. <laughs> he's talking to people who don't know very much, and he's saying, what I am to you is bread. That's John 6, right? I'm the bread of life. Anyone who feasts on me will live. You guys tracking with me here? Jesus is trying to make it simple enough that we understand his absolute necessity for us if we want to have life. So we need communion constantly as a reminder and as the route to our renewal. Okay, That's what we need communion for. It reminds us and it also is part of the process that we are renewed. So... What if you feel today like that betrayer? What if you feel like Judas? How do I take worthily when I have betrayed Christ this morning? When I betrayed Christ last week? When I feel right now like I am Judas, how can I possibly take? And the answer, my friends, is if you think you've hit the bottom because of your sin, look at Jesus because his grace is deeper than your sin. You with me? His love is further and richer and more robust and strong. Do you get this? Jesus' love is greater than your sin. Every dark part of your heart, the parts that you don't even fully know, or when something comes out of you and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was in me. Jesus' love and power and grace is richer and deeper and stronger than that. So the message to you and me, the Judas is out here, is look at Jesus. When they're around the table in John, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they all say, is it I, Lord? Is it I? The counterpoint to, is it I, Lord, is you are Lord. If you look at yourself, of course you're going to be depressed. Of course you're going to be a mess. Because guess what? The Bible says, we're all broken. We're messed up. Look at Jesus. So my commendation, my encouragement to you is, if you feel like you're Judas, stop looking at you. Because you are. I am too. We're the betrayer, right? Isn't that what Scripture says? We put him on the cross. Paul says, consider yourself the chief of sinners, doesn't he? He's saying, you got to imagine that you're at the top of the mountain when it comes to betraying Jesus. And once you do that, then you can say, 
I am so sinful. The only route in is by Jesus' complete welcome and acceptance. Do you want to know how you take worthily? By saying, I don't deserve to be in the room. And you get the power of this? Jesus doesn't say, come in the room. He says, I've got a feast for you. That's the power of the gospel. It's needy people aren't just welcomed. They're feasted. That's what the gospel is all about. Now, while I look for a little bit, I'm, I'm stepping back from my point because I want to make an argument for what we should do right now. Excuse me. I knew I was going to cry. I do this every time. I'll, read, I'll give you one more quote by Luther here. This is just, uh, again, I'm talking about me. I don't know if this is you. Feeling I shouldn't take. And Luther actually says, the Holy Spirit has been instituted by Christ not as a poison for us or a sign of Christ's wrath, but as a means of comfort and salvation. Above all, realize that however great your unworthiness, the merit of your Lord Jesus Christ cannot be doubted. You see the reframing? Stop looking at you. Start looking at him. That's what the whole scriptural message is about. See your Jesus and take and eat. Okay. Let's move into looking at the supper itself. I want to look specifically at what happens. This is a simple supper. Like, guys, uh, we live... Okay, we're a non-denominational church, which means we're Baptist. That's like the secret thing, I'll tell you. So, so I, I, I was a professor of church history. I'm allowed to make that joke. So... Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways churches practice communion, and I'm going to make an argument for why we do it the way we do. I'm going to make an argument for why we should do it a way I don't think we do. So I'm going somewhere with this. Historically, uh, we know that the church practiced communion as part of a communal meal. We know this because the book of Jude talks about love feasts. It says like everyone gets together and has this love feast. We know Paul talks all in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians about when there's a feast, everyone gets together, and there's the communion as part of the practice. So it looks like in the early church, people got together, had a big meal, and one part of that meal was communion. So the first argument I just threw out there is we need more potlucks. It's good and biblical. So... Make sure you bring good stuff to the potluck. That's the catch, right? So, so potlucks are good. They're biblical. But notice that the Eucharist then, the communion, the Lord's Supper, or th- Eucharist literally means like, like Thanksgiving, like our Thanksgiving, that meal, is naturally part of what the body does together. And notice that Jesus doesn't actually give anyone the lead. You know, we know that Peter is the head of the church in Jerusalem, right? You know, Paul becomes this great leader. Jesus doesn't hand anyone the job. He says, I'm giving you this communion. He hands it out. So I'm making an argument here. There should be no one in between you and receiving the body of Jesus, receiving the blood of Jesus, okay? I think this is one of the dangers. I'm just going to real quickly get specific. This is one of the dangers, I think, of the Catholic vision of communion. We love our Catholic brothers and sisters who love Jesus, but the danger of that is there's no one in between you. Calvin says this about where we get the communion from. He, Jesus, bids his disciples take, and it is himself alone that offers. It is a strange inversion when a mortal man who's commanded to take the body of Christ claims the office of offering it. Do you hear what he's saying? 
So when you come up and you're going to take in a little bit, don't think there's anything special going on. I'm not in charge of it. You, you know, you know, Jesse's not in charge of it. We're all receiving from the one source. There's only one bread. You track with me? There's only one route, and that's Jesus. So don't let anyone get in the way of your reception of Jesus' body and blood, okay? Replaces Passover. What's some other things we can say about this? This replaces Passover. Jesus is going to be the Passover sacrificed lamb, okay? So where we're going with this is, <laughs> why does Jesus do it after the meal? Why is the communion after when everyone's done eating? Calvin says, because the meal's over. No one ever has to have the Passover meal again because the real meal has arrived, right? Jesus' sacrifice is coming the next day. You don't have to have a meal celebrating the Passover. You're going to see the real thing. So the Passover, which comes from the Old Testament, what, what, we're, what I'm trying to say here is that was never the story. The story was always that Jesus takes us out of captivity in Egypt. You guys get my reference? In the Old Testament, that's what Passover was, when they were saved from Egypt, from slavery. But what Scripture tells us is that Jesus is the true Passover, right? I don't need to be saved from Egypt. I need to be saved from the sins inside my own heart. And Jesus does that by dying on the cross. That's the gospel message. How about the bread? Again, this is simple. I already said it. Why does Jesus say he's the bread of life? Because if you don't have it, you die. Like, literally, don't, don't use 21st century brain. Use 1st century brain. What do I need so I live another week? You need bread. You need Jesus. That's all there is to it. It's that simple. How about the wine? Jesus said it's a new covenant in my blood. This is a covenant by which we simply receive. Calvin says, Christ openly declares he called the bread his body for no other reason than because he made with us an everlasting covenant so we can be spiritually fed. You're hungry, you're needy, and Jesus says, I promise you, if you take, you'll get everything you need. That's Jesus' covenant. That's his promise to you and to me. A couple other things I want to mention. What do we not say about the Lord's Supper? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm showing our theological cards here. We don't call it a sacrifice. Now, that is a Catholic tradition of calling a sacrifice. I strongly warn against that. Romans 6, 9 through 10 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. We don't do a sacrifice when we have communion, okay? Jesus did one sacrifice, and it transcends all the time and space. No one ever needs to do a sacrifice again. Do you think... That by punishing yourself, you're going to add to Jesus' righteousness? Do you ever do something and think, I need, to, I need to feel the pain of my misdeed. I need to grind myself by self-condemnation. Really feel that. There's one sacrifice. Will you stop killing your sheep and your goats to make Jesus happy? He died. you got to I'm, I'm talking to myself here. we got to stop killing things to prove to Jesus our love. Because he said, no, no, this covenant, I do it. You don't sacrifice, I sacrifice, and you receive. Are you tracking with me? We take, we receive, we get. We don't do anything. That's why Jesus hands it out the table. He says, you need to take what I've got. Calvin says, we can, there's all these different directions we can go when looking at the communion. Is Jesus present in the elements? There's all these theological debates. I'm not going to go into them. We can, or if you want to talk, we can talk afterwards. But Calvin has a point right. He says, no one takes away from the sacrament more than is gathered with the vessel of faith. 
If you come to the table and say, this is going to give me what I need, you're only right if you trust that you'll meet Jesus. I'm going to say that again. If you come to the table and think, oh man, I had a bad week. If you think, I am terrible and lowly and I don't deserve the love of God, you're ready. When you see who you are, it's examine yourself. Isn't that what Paul says? When you examine and say, I see the broken parts of me, then you're ready. And you can take in joy, brothers and sisters, when you say, wow, God is such a good Savior. Jesus is so good to me. The Word of God is so sweet. That's a great place to take too. But you need to examine yourself and know where you are and where He is. You tracking? We need to make sure we know our status and His, because the only good the sacrament will do for us is if we believe. So there's an old, um, getting into theology debates, I, I taught Corbin for a while, one of my favorite thought experiments is if someone runs to the front of the church and grabs a chalice and glugs it, do they get Jesus? I'm not joking. If you believe in transubstantiation, that it's actually literally the body and blood of Christ, the answer is, I guess he stole it, yes. We don't don't believe that here. You only receive by faith. It's just, just bread and wine, brothers and sisters, unless by your faith, instead you receive Christ's death and resurrection. You follow me? In our faith is how we receive. Zwingli says, we believe, he's a, he's a reformer, we believe that Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper. Yay. We believe that there is no communion without the presence of Christ. Think about it this way. If it's only bread and wine, it doesn't mean anything unless Jesus is here. Unless Jesus is present so we can meet him, it's a waste of time. This is the proof, Zwingli says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, that's Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of him. How much more is he present, where the whole congregation is assembled to his honor? So this is the vision of communion, you guys, that when we get together as a body, we break out the bread and wine or the crackers and the grape juice, whatever it is, and we say, Jesus, we are eating this because we need to be reminded of our absolute dependence on you. That's what we need. That's what we do. I was actually thinking, we, we sang earlier, or rather the scripture, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving means Eucharist. How do you enter the gates of the heavenlies? By partaking, by eating, by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Okay? Now, last thing I'll, I'll add here. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. I am going to make an argument for you guys. Uh, me and, me and uh, Brian were talking last night because he's preaching in Salem. Um, I'm pushing somewhere that I don't know if, Poor, if Matt Poor is on board with. We'll see. Maybe we'll get a bad, uh, nasty email here. I have come to believe, Brian and I were talking about this, that we have made an error in how we do communion because we're only doing it in church. The scriptures seem to indicate that Didache, which is the oldest extra biblical text, it's from the 80s or 90s AD, it's very old. They have a meal, it's pretty explicit. During the meal, you stop and everyone says, okay, it's time for the Eucharist. Everyone, you're going to receive from the Lord now. It's just part of a meal. I'm making the argument for you guys, we need more church potlucks. But next time you are gathered together with brothers and sisters, take a moment over your meal I told my wife last night, like 1130, this is like, okay, next week we are doing this. I want to taste and see the Lord is good. I'm going to try this. So this is what we're going to be doing. You can, you know, your mileage may vary. But when you're eating with a brother or sister, I'm going to encourage you, maybe just this week, take a moment during your meal and say, this 
diet soda that I'm drinking, this hot wing I'm eating with my buddy at the bar, this is actually represent my, my absolute need for this hot wing right now. <laughs> I don't know, do you guys like hot wings? That, that's my thing. <laughs> my need for this is actually representative of my need for Jesus. And when I'm with my brother or sister over that meal, it's appropriate to say, stop. This is how hungry we are. I just don't always feel that hungry. You get me? We're actually that needy and hungry, but a lot of times we don't notice. Imagine with me. What would happen to your life if you actually believed that Jesus joined you at every meal when another Christian was present? What if you actually believed Jesus showed up every time you sat around a table with a brother or sister, could be your wife, your kids, and you, in the middle of the meal, stopped for a second and said, let's consider where real food is from. What would happen to your walk with Jesus if you reminded yourself, yourself at every shared meal that you are as hungry for him spiritually as you are for the food set before you? This is my encouragement for you guys. I want you to see that what Jesus establishes in the Lord's Supper is simple. In fact, uh, the word that some scholars have used is it's primitive. There's no lifting of chalices. There's no big pronouncements from the stage. He just hands the bread out and says, are you hungry? I've got what you need. Isn't that the message of Jesus? The message of the gospel is we're hurting and broken, and we've got a great Savior who's full of everything we need. That's the vision. And it also sends us somewhere. I'm going to close with this thought. Notice how Jesus says, I will not eat this of the, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Jesus does not drink any wine in Acts. Like when he, after his resurrection, he appears a couple times, he doesn't drink any wine. So the question is, if the Passover's been fulfilled, it hasn't been fully fulfilled all the way. When is the Passover really going to be fulfilled all the way, completely? When we're in heaven at the final feast. So in other words, follow me here, when we gather as believers in communion, we are still telling a story about where we're going. When we gather as believers and we take and eat and see the Lord is good, we're imagining and waiting for and prophesying, actually, of the great feast that is to come. So there's actually, follow me here, there's a missionary vision here. When we take communion, we're saying every single Christian... 2,000 years ago to however long the world lasts until Je as Jesus tarries, as, he, as we wait for him, every single Christian I share this bread with. In fact, uh, I'll just read you real quickly. I love this. Uh, this is from, from the Didache. When, uh, when they're done eating, oh, where's, my, where's my note here? When they're done eating, the Didache, 80, 90, 80, says, you give food and, it says to God, you gave food and drink to men for enjoyment that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you freely gave spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant Jesus. So what they're saying is, every time we eat, we're all getting from the one bread, the one loaf, the one source. You guys know what the word Bethlehem means? It's Bethchach and Shachim, which means like, or excuse me, Lachem, which means like the house of bread. What comes to Bethlehem? Bread! <laughs> Why do you go to Bethlehem? Because you need bread, because you're hungry. Like, I'm, I'm talking tongue-in-cheek, but I'm not. The scriptural names aren't accidents. It's because Bethlehem's the place you got to go if you're hungry. 
Are you with me? We just celebrated Christmas. This is what it's all about. Are you hungry? Do you need something to eat? Jesus has what you need. Last thing I'll close with is this. There's a missionary vision in the supper as we're waiting to see all the, all the people of God assembled. Spurgeon says, watch what happens when you take. Watch what happens to your life. He says, quote, remember Jesus so he becomes your pattern and you are the reproduction of himself and so the best memorial of him. Jesus says, do this in remembrance. And Spurgeon says, and when you do, you'll be the remembrance. Do you see the beauty of that? When you take communion rightly, when you take and receive and eat of the one who gives you life, your life is going to become the memorial. You get it? People can see in you when you're not at church taking communion. They'll see in your life and say, that guy's fed. You hear me? You'll look, they'll look at your life and say, that person is full. He has everything he or she needs. Don't you want people to see Jesus in your life? That's how you come up and you take and you receive. I'm unworthy, but my goodness, the Lord is good to me. That's how you take. Van, you want to come on up? We're going to take together. It's a great Sunday for communion, isn't it? So we're going to have folks standing up here at the front and maybe a guy or two at the back. Come up as you're ready. Thanks. I'll wait for everyone to get it and sit back down. Once you've got the cracker and the juice, now is the time to discern the body and examine yourself. So I'm going to give you guys 30 seconds or a minute. Once you've got, your, once you've got the elements, take some time, think about who Jesus is, and think about who you are. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true blood and my uh, true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, we need the bread from heaven.
In the Old Testament, we saw how the manna fell when the people were in the wilderness and had nothing to eat, and you caused bread to fall. That's the vision of you, Jesus, that we're in a wilderness, and we're hungry, and we're thirsty, and we're needy, and you shower us with your grace through Jesus Christ. God, we confess our sins as we're holding the elements. We're unworthy. We're dirty, naked, poor. But Scripture promises that you give freely, that our absolute poverty is met by the riches and abundance of your grace and love. So we ask God, give us the confidence. We don't want to be Judases. God, help us look at you so we can see in the meal that everything we have ever needed has been provided by you. Will we take and eat heartily of your promise, of your spirit, of your body and blood? Amen. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians. We're going to do it the way Paul says. You guys heard this before? Beautiful. Listen, now that we've talked about it, listen to the beauty of this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'll say a closing prayer. Lord, we've taken, we've feasted. God, would you give us zeal this week? to see that the communion meal has not stopped. In fact, the communion meal never stops because you're always pouring more of your spirit and life into us. Would we stop, God? Would you help us stop sacrificing our things so we can meet you and instead come as deeply needy receivers who have never once been sent away hungry? You never leave us unfilled or thirsty. You always give us everything we need. Help us live in that.